Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Jim King, lecturer of Applied Linguistics and Psychology of Language Education. Dr. Jim King, how are you? Good morning. Very well. I was afraid to pronounce your university for misspelling it. Can you tell me the name <laughs> of your university? <laughs> yeah, Leicester. Leicester. Uh, okay. Yeah, I would have butchered it. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard Leicester <laughs> in the past, but uh, yeah, it's Leicester. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on the program. And I'd also like to thank Simon Humphreys for introducing us. Simon's a really nice guy, and he said it would be great to interview interview you for the program. Also, I've interviewed Seiko Harumi, who you've co-edited a few books with. Is that correct? Just just the one, just the uh, East Asian perspectives on, on silence in English language education. And that book that, is available that now, right? It really rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? East Asian Perspectives on Silence in English Language Education? Yeah. Yeah, not too, not too bad. It's easier than your university. I'm still not going to say it. <laughs> Lester. 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 <laughs> That's it. All right, Lester. And then uh, the, the book I talked about with Simon was The Emotional Roller Coaster of Language Teaching. That's right, yeah. And um, I co-edited that with Christina Gnocchi and Jean-Marc Duale. And both those books are available on the website Multilingual Matters, and I'm, I'm happy to post another link to those. If you're, it, I've also posted links on previous episodes, so if you go back and listen to Seiko or Simon's interviews, you, you can find information for those. But anyway, the article we're going to discuss today is Silence in the Second Language Classrooms of Japanese Universities. This was quite an undertaking, and so I'd kind of like to start with that. Uh, it was a very bold endeavor as far as the amount of universities that you did collected research in and the amount of students. How did this project come to be? Did you? I'm assuming you received a grant um, or was this something that has that was in the works for quite a few years? It was published in 2013. Yeah. So, so when I mean, cer did... Sorry, yeah. certainly the topic of student silence had been boiling away um, within me for, for a few years. Uh, you know, my interest in it had, had been uh, developing o over time. And you call it a bold study. I, maybe I, I'd say it. As I was doing it, it was foolhardy because um, logistically it was it was really challenging. Um, because at the time when I did it, I, I was based in the UK, so I, I had quite short windows where I could um, go to the various universities and collect data. So, as much as anything, it was it was a real logis logistical challenge to do. You were living in the UK during the time of data collection. Yeah. Yeah, wow. that's right. Yeah. Why did you yeah. why did you decide to do that? Well, you're just logistically. That seems almost impossible. I think it'd be difficult <laughs> to to cover nine universities even living in Japan. Well, yeah, it can be done with a lot of a lot of organization. One of the one of the difficulties of observation research is actually gaining access because you know, teachers don't really like people coming into their classrooms and watching them. Um, so this was, this was in particular a challenge, was uh, to persuade people to, to let me to come in and 
and to sit there, you know, looking as if I was taking notes. So part of the whole process was um, was persuading them that I, I wasn't going in to judge them. And I was more interested in what was happening in their classrooms in terms of communication rather than looking at their, you know, some kind of crit- critique of, of their teaching technique. Now, how did I this think, how did this work with your teaching schedule in the UK? Oh, well, I, uh, because at the time I was doing my PhD. Okay. Yeah. So, so I was relatively free of of uh, teaching commitments. I see. Um, yeah. So I I collected the data in in two phases. Um, in the first phase, it was a case of um, looking at a number of classrooms multiple times in order to try to get some depth of data. And then in the second phase, I went back and I tried to look at many different classrooms as I could in order to see whether those trends that I discovered in the first phase were um, constant in, in other settings. Well, you and you did a good job of spreading it out over different kinds of universities, and, and you you gave the background of why that's important in the paper. You you said one municipal, two national, six private universities, all located in Honshu, and you were the only one collecting data, or did you did you have yeah. people to help you? No, there's no, there's only me. Just oh my, me. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and uh, this think- is quite the undertaking. <laughs> If I remember rightly, I, I had one of those um, Japan Rail travel pass things, mm-hmm. which which made it a lot easier to actually get round, and uh, it, it uh, you know it, it didn't cost me a fortune. But, all- yeah, yeah, it's kind of you know it, it was it was literally a case of trying to uh, say in the morning I'm going to be at this university then I've got to get over to the other side of Tokyo to get to this university and be in this classroom of this university that I've never been to before in my life so it was lots of meticulous planning and making sure that um, that I'd be there on time basically and almost a thousand English language learners were observed uh, 924 right. yeah. a total of 48 hours of data were collected this is, I, I'm just kind of gobsmacked that you did this by yourself. I was assuming there was like a team and you were given a grant and you hired assistants. No, 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 no. just just me. And I mean, the, the other thing with observation research is the more observation, the better. So, you know, I, I was trying to get as many classroom observations as I, as I possibly could. How um, did you get? You know, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Please. I was I was wondering how what was the process of getting permission to observe the classes because I find I, I'm I'm in the process of of applying for a grant and something that I'd like to do possibly in two years, and I I'm running into resistance already of certain centers saying uh, I don't think I want to let you in here because I don't really know what you're going to do and I think most of the time people's normal you know, answer is no, just because it's easier. Is this going to cause more more work for me and all that? And most people just say no. Did you have someone sort of on the inside to to help you grease the grease Sometimes, the wheels a bit? Yes. 
Yes, sometimes. Um, and it's it's always good if you can cultivate somebody in in who's got a bit of power, a bit of sway within a particular university. Um, but I, I think that, I mean, this is <laughs> this is something about research that often doesn't get talked about in research methodology texts is that I think to be a, a successful researcher, it, it does involve having some soft skills, being able to talk to people, being able to persuade people. Um, you know, I, I think partly as well, gaining access is about trust and, and they need to trust you. Part of that is making it very, very clear that you've got uh, re robust ethical approval behind your study that, you know, um, the institution will be anonymous and the participants will be anonymous and the confidentiality and all those aspects as well. Um, but in, in terms of actually observing teachers, I also found that what tended to happen would be I, I would observe somebody and they actually found that, you know, it wasn't uh, an unpleasant experience, that actually what happened was they forgot I was there. And, and that's what you're aiming for as an observer. You, you don't want the teacher to be conscious that you're there. You don't want the students to be conscious that you're there because if they are, um, that will encourage unnatural behavior. So what you're as an as a observing researcher, you want to be looking at natural behavior and, and not behavior that's been biased by the presence of, of somebody watching. Um, so what I found was with the teachers, they didn't find it to be too uncomfortable an experience. And as a result of that, they would sometimes then uh, recommend me to, to another colleague and, and it would kind of, you know, go along like that. Well, before we jump into the paper, can I ask you a little bit of your background? What made you interested in applied linguistics and more specifically silence in the classroom and then more specifically still silence in the Japanese classroom? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I was a English language teacher before I became an academic um, and worked in various different countries around the world. Um, and I came to Japan in about 2000, I think it was 2001. And I, I was lucky enough to land a job at um, Ehime University, which is a, a national university. And I did that without, without a PhD or anything. And I'm, I'm not sure that that would be um, possible nowadays. But, uh, you know, 20 years ago, you could do it if you were lucky. And I came to Japan from having been based in Italy, in Milan. And what I found as an English teacher in, in Milan was that um, my students would reach maybe about pre-intermediate level and then, and then they were just, they were off. They would just talk mm -hmm. and talk. And my difficulty there was actually trying to stop them from talking. <laughs> right. <laughs> I then came to Japan and I was teaching quite a few compulsory first year English uh, classes for non-language majors. And it was just the, the stark contrast with that 
um, that experience in Italy, whereby just faced by this kind of wall of silence. And it, it just got me thinking. And, you know, rather than actually being frustrated by that so-called non-responsiveness, I decided to try and look into what was causing it and try to get to the to the root of it. All right, well, let's go through a few of the terms that you brought up in your background and some of the instruments you used for measurement. So first of all, you talked about the dynamic, dynamic systems theory perspective, DST, how that leads to attractor states, and then you also use that as a link to McIntyre's theory on communication as a volitional process. Would you mind summarizing some of those, those terms and how you applied it to the study? Yeah, um, and dynamic systems theory has has been become quite popular in applied linguistics um, in recent years. Uh, Diane Larson Freeman and Lynn Cameron they wrote a very influential book in about 2008, um, which considered complexity and dynamic systems theory in applied linguistics, and it it just appeals to me because I think it's. It's a theory, I, I see it as a kind of a supra theory, a theory that is able to sit on top of other theories. It doesn't preclude uh, the use of other theories. And I see it just as a, as a way of, of, of making sense of the world. Um, in traditional research, variables are isolated and they're measured. And then we try to make predictions based on those measurements. Um, dynamic systems theory is a little bit different because what it says is that you, you can't really isolate variables because, for example, um, a student's classroom discourse behavior, it's not caused by just one variable, one factor. It's caused by multiple variables, multiple factors mm -hmm. that are all interlinked and related to each other that push um, the discourse system in a particular direction. With, with silence and silence in Japanese university language classrooms, my argument is that there are a lot of very powerful factors related not just to the individual learners and their mental characteristics, but also to the setting uh, the immediate classroom setting that could be connected to the teacher or the methodology or the task in hand, but also to the societal context as well. You know, how is silence valued? How is it viewed, especially in education? When you get lots of these factors working together to push um, the system in a particular direction, you would call those attractors, and when they are all together, it's it's like an attractor basin. Okay, so in the paper, I I make the comparison of um, a beach ball rolling along the the beach, pushed by the wind, and you can consider that the beach ball is like the the students or the classes um, discourse system. As it rolls along the beach, there are hollows in the beach. Now these are hollows that attract towards um, reticence and silence. 
when these hollows are very deep and they have a very strong attract and they're all grouped together, that beach ball is going to get stuck. It's not going to move. And that's the comparison that I make with um, silence in Japanese university language classrooms is that the beach ball's kind of stuck. Um, we can actually predict what discourse behavior is going to be relatively easy in this context. Um, some people say that complex dynamic systems is, is uh, not very useful because it says that you can never predict anything. You know, the idea that uh, a butterfly flaps its wings in America and there's a, a tsunami in, in uh, Vietnam. But actually, when we look at a phenomenon and there are lots of factors that pull the discourse system in a particular direction, yes, we can predict behavior. I really like that. That's something I'm also interested in, measuring silence and trying to understand silence. Like you said, there's many factors at play. Um, I'm sure you read uh, Dr. Harumi's article that we talked about, uh, where she she cites Libra in 1987, silence as truthfulness, silence as yeah. social discretion, silence as embarrassment, silence as defiance. Uh, there's lots of you know silence to afraid of losing face. Um, there's lots of there's lots of reasons, individual reasons, like you said, a lot of individual That's variables, yeah. but they could possibly. Yeah. Be playing off each other, like you said. Also in the in the article, depending on the context, you know, the classroom has a big effect. Who are the students in the class? The teacher, how people are feeling, the time of day. It's so I like this. So this theory is 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 a way to yeah. to put a lot of these variables together in in one. That's right. Okay. That's right. It it, it illustrates the complexity of silence. And then Absolutely. your measurements. I mean, thing, oh, go ahead. Go sorry. Ahead. Sorry, Jonathan. No, please, go ahead. The thing is that um, this paper and observation is, is good for establishing whether a phenomenon exists and to, and to measure its extent, but it's not so great at looking at causes. And so, you know, I would say that you need a maybe a more qualitative approach to look at what the causes are. You have to actually start talking to people to find out what's going on, why didn't they respond, or you know what were they thinking or feeling um, whilst a silent episode was in progress. And the the measurement system you used was something called the classroom oral participation scheme. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you you chose this method? Yeah, I mean my my uh, my joke is the. The classroom oral participation scheme is, is the cops. <laughs> and, and the cops gives me my evidence. <laughs> You're the first person to laugh at that, but anyway. No, but see, uh, well, just, just to pull the curtain back, I was going to ask you about the story when you knew Simon, when he had some issues, and I was going to make a joke linking it with the cops. But oh, because we didn't bring that up, I just had to let it be. But I, yeah, I was definitely thinking about ways to talk about cops. But so... I was ready to laugh for sure. Um, anyway, <laughs> sorry. The, so it, the COPS is stru structured observation. Mm -hmm. um, and structured observation is really good at finding out 
whether something exists or not. And and that was the, the challenge for me because there was lots of anecdotal evidence that um, that Japanese language learners were silent. And, you know, I know from my own time working uh, in Japan that if you go to a conference or, you know, you talk to colleagues in the staff room or whatever, that, that this would be a topic of conversation. But when I started looking around at the literature, um, I couldn't actually find any empirical evidence that silence existed. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was the push, really, to 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 use um, structured observation. And this, the COPS instrument, it's uh, it's adapted um, from a couple of other um, observation instruments. And actually, I think you know, you you said to me when you were uh, talking to me about coming on this that you'd like me to give some advice to novice researchers. Right. And I think that that's a really good advice, actually, is that you don't have to invent a completely new research instrument to do good research. Um, often it's it can be a mistake to try and reinvent the wheel. So one tip that I would have is to, to look at instruments that other people have used and you know adapt it for your study how can you how can you improve that instrument or how can you adapt it to suit your your own particular context um there's a there's a really good database called the iris database have you heard of that no i haven't it's um it's the what's what does iris stand for instruments for research in second language or something like that hmm. it's the iris database i'll send you the link oh please and um in that database it's got lots and lots of instruments that researchers have used in applied linguistic studies and they're freely available for download oh perfect that's part, great part of the reason that that the um the database was created um I think it's Alison Mackey and Emma Marsden. I used to work with Emma Marsden at, at the University of York and, and did an interview with her actually about the database, which is, well, let's see, 2013 in, in the language teacher, you know, the JOLT publication. Okay, yeah. Um, so, I mean, have, have a look at that. But the idea is that journals are, are pretty limited for space, and so, you know, you read the study, you look at the results, you read the discussion, but you don't actually usually get a chance to, to look at the instrument. And so the idea behind the uh, IRIS database is that it allows people to look at instruments that researchers have used and allows people to use these instruments or adapt them for themselves. Well, wow. also, I mean, there's there's kind of a growing interest in replication research as well mm-hmm. in applied linguistics. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's a great resource. I I'd like to look at that for my my own research. Um, an- another another term you brought up in the the background was the Granger psychoanalytic theory. This is something I'm not really familiar with. Why did you decide to discuss this in the paper? Well, partly because Granger wrote a book, Silence in Second Language Learning, a, a Psychoanalytic Reading, 
And and at the time, I think it's 2004 she wrote that, um, it was one of only a handful of, of books on silence in, in uh, applied linguistics. And it's a really good book, actually. And she, she draws on ideas um, from psychoanalysts, uh, psychoanalysis, sorry, in particular, looking at um, anxiety and oh. how anxiety can can uh, can lead to, to silence and uh, non-talk. She she makes a very good point actually that language learners occupy uh, a very shaky linguistic self. They're on a kind of a journey between their L1 self and their L2 self. And that shaky linguistic self can, you know, it, it can be quite anxiety inducing because you can't be who you are in your first language. You can't say what you want to say in your, as you would in your first language. You know, you can't express yourself maybe in the same way. Okay. Um, all right. Well, let's get into the meat of the paper. So you, in your discussion section, you discussed uh, a few different findings, silence of disengagement, silence of teacher-centered methods, silence of nonverbal activities, silence of confusion, silence of hypersensitivity to others. As far as silence of hypersensitivity to others, is this the phenomenon you find in Japan where you ask the class you, you try to elicit a response and then you, you, you call on a person's name in particular and then that person looks around to the person next to them and behind them and, and then confirms the correct answer. Is that an example of hypersensitivity to others? Are there others as well? Other examples? Yeah, I, think, I think you're, you're along, along the right lines. Um, I, I would say that silence to hypersensitivity to others is another way of looking at it is social aspects of foreign language anxiety. So it's the idea that students are kind of enculturated, I believe, in Japan into feeling that they're they're being constantly watched and constantly judged. Why do you say that's that? Great, that's great for um, controlling behavior. Why why do you why do you say that? Where did you where did you get um as I agree, I agree with you, but I'm wondering if is that is that based on something that you read or a study that was done? I think you mentioned earlier about Seiko had drawn on sources, including Labra. Mm -hmm. Well, Labra and Ria will talk about how children are taught from a very early age that their behaviour is being constantly monitored oh, by others. Oh, by you mean society. As far yeah, as there's a ah, kind of got it. Okay. Disapproving gaze. Mm. It's it's a kind of control strategy, and I think that this this idea continues, and I think that uh, students in class they they do feel that they're being judged and observed by by classmates. I know that when I went on after this after this study, to do um, interviews, again and again and again, this hypersensitivity to others in the class came up. Um, and interviewees, they talked about feeling, you know, uncomfortable about 
speaking out because it was a risk. Um, they could lose face. There was a danger that they would look foolish in front of others. They were, you know, afraid of making uh, mistakes. And, and when you think about it, for a lot of these learners, in that kind of situation, silence is, is the sensible option mm-hmm. because yep. they're going to pass anyway. You know, yeah. for a lot for a lot of students, it's just a case of you turn up. If you turn up, you're going to pass. And and it's kind of it's it's the idea that to not speak out is is normal behavior. Well, I, I talk a lot about that in my um, my upcoming thesis about how shyness is an attractive trait in Japanese society. Also, yeah. there there's a, a fear of, you know well, the perfectionism and a lot of times people can fall into silence as, as a shield. Okay. Well, I'm not making any mistakes if I don't say anything. And also I'm, I'm perceived as shy, which is an attractive trait in Japanese society. So it's, it can be a comfortable thing to just, you know, and, and, and in high school and junior high school, they were expected to sit and be silent and listen to the teacher anyway. So yeah, they're not really right. used to speaking out. And and then that was the one of the main findings from your paper. You said that students were found to be responsible for less than 1% of initiated talk within their classes. Which, uh, which is a startlingly low figure. So what... Yeah, I, I mean, you make, you make a good point about perfectionism because we know from, from um, research in psychology that uh, perfectionism is something that highly anxious people strive for they mm. they have they have unrealistic um goals for for um what they what they can achieve and there's a good paper actually by tammy gregerson and elaine horwitz that looks at this issue perfectionism um amongst highly anxious language learners and of course silence is a it's a defensive strategy um and it's a defensive strategy with with the risk of losing face being minimal. Now, when 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 this was all done and published, how did you how did you feel about all of this? It was something that you were interested in studying because you faced it firsthand in Japan. Is it something that you thought, oh, I, I'd like to train teachers that are teaching Japanese students? I'd like to go back to Japan now, knowing what I know. How, how did yeah, you feel think, when it was all done? I think. Uh, I think it's the case of good good research topics are, are ones that you've always wondered about or they've affected you, you know, or they've they've influenced you in some way or they've they've caused you to worry about something. Um, and and this was the case for me uh, with this. And also, it was an element of it was an unexplored area. You know, um, good research should be original. Uh, and so looking at this particular topic, there's not a lot out there. I mean, there's been a little bit more recently, but certainly when I started doing the study in this paper, um, there was very, very little empirical research out there. Um, so, yeah, there was there was a gap. Do you have any goals of coming back to Japan and teaching one day? Who knows? I mean, I, I, I often come back. Um, I, I keep coming back. Um, I keep coming back and doing some research. I was there actually 
very recently. I, I went out at the end of February um, to do some to do some research and to do some talks, uh, but unfortunately, coronavirus um, reared its ugly head, and uh, everything got cancelled, and uh, and uh, I had to had to flee back to the UK. You know, speaking speaking of that, uh, maybe this would be the final thought I wanted to share with you. Something very interesting I'm noticing happening with the shift to online lessons. I'm yeah. having my students record dialogues um, as part of their homework assignment. And I'm noticing the quality of output has improved considerably. And okay. I can attest, I, I can I can only assume it's because they're alone and they're not being observed like like we mentioned before. They're 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 free of the fear. They're making mistakes, so the perfectionism thing is kind of gone. So yeah. it's kind of in, an interesting an interesting thing seeing how think, well the production is just outside of the classroom. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I I think that uh, if if you're looking at at silence and you're looking at reticence, you have to look at context. Context is really key, and in Japan, um, classrooms are public. They're public places. So what you say is exposed to, to everybody else, usually. Um, you know, it's it's the Soto mode, isn't it? Um, but your students doing their dialogues, maybe in their own homes or whatever, um, you know, that's private, isn't it? So there's, there's a lot less pressure. They're not exposed to other people's judgments, other people watching them. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, that's a positive thing. One of the few positive things to, to come out of this. The other positive thing is this podcast. It gives people like you less, of, less of an excuse to say no. <laughs> I invite you for interviews. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, the paper is silence in the second language classrooms of Japanese universities and this was published in Applied Linguistics. Congratulations on, on get, what a great journal that is. Thank you, Dr. King, for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Jonathan. It's been very interesting talking to you. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email, lostincitations at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash lostincitations. It also helps greatly if you share the show on your social media platform of choice. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us a five-star rating and favorable review on iTunes. This will help us tremendously. One final thing, and maybe most important, if you enjoy listening to the show, please tell a friend or colleague. People often talk about their favorite podcasts, so let people know that you're listening. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.